Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. There's no bigger issue here right now than the building evidence of a coordinated Chinese campaign to interfere with at least the past two federal elections. First-rate reporting by the Globe and Mail and Global News has unearthed extraordinary details about these interference efforts, including the Chinese consulate threatening to revoke the student visas of Chinese nationals studying in Canada if they didn't vote or volunteer for Liberal candidates. We know of at least one sitting member of Parliament that Canadian intelligence officials believe won his party's nomination as a result of these activities. There's also reason to believe that senior members of the Trudeau government were briefed on these matters. Yet, as we'll discuss, the government's position thus far is to mostly dismiss the reports and even accuse the opposition of sowing distrust about the reliability of Canada's elections. I'm grateful to get David's perspective on this fast-moving file, including how we ought to think about the threat of foreign interference in our elections in general, and the similarities and differences to the accusations of foreign meddling in the 2016 presidential election in particular. David, thanks for joining me as always. Well, it's, it's I don't want to say good to be with you because it's such a concerning and upsetting topic that we have to discuss today, but I'm glad to be with you. I know that you've been following this reporting closely. Why don't we just start with your general reaction? Are you surprised at all about what we learned? No, these rumors have been swirling for a long time. And in fact, I, I um, testified before uh, the uh, Canadian Parliament, I think just before the pandemic, about um, some of the risks that Canada was in- inviting. Um, and it's not just the Chinese. Um, you know, the, uh, the Saudis, Iranians and others have been very active uh, in Canada. Canadians generally have not had an attitude of fortifying their political process um, against this kind of interference when they have seen it take place in so many other countries. Um, It needs to be stressed, as you said in your introduction, that there's no question here that the votes are honestly and accurately counted in Canada and that the people who got the most votes in the various constituencies or ridings genuinely got them. I mean, no one denies that that the people who won the count won the count. Uh, the question is, what kinds of foreign influences have been brought to bear um, and um, what kind of intimidation and pressure and even sometimes threats of violence are being deployed against members of the Chinese-Canadian community and expatriate Chinese in Canada? Um, the government would have you believe that somehow um, that there's some, some xenophobic element in this concern when, in fact, it is Chinese-Canadians who have been some of the most um, – uh, expose victims to the Chinese government's actions inside Canada. Yeah, that's a great point. Because one thing that has struck me ab- about the reporting 
is the direct link to the Canadian consulate. That is to say, this isn't just some members of the Chinese Canadian community freelancing. It has the aperture of the Chinese Communist Party. What does it tell us about the CCP's growing reach into the politics and broader society of countries like Canada? Well, it, it tells us a lot about the, the way modern um, technology works. We live in a globalized world um, for good and bad. Um, things move across borders more easily than they used to do. Good things move across borders more easily and bad things move across borders more easily. And so governments have to be active. The, um, the Trudeau government has known about this for four years. Um, and uh, it appears, and maybe that's unfair, but it appears like they did nothing. And that they were under special, knowing that they themselves were the intended beneficiaries of these actions. And by the way, again, it needs to be stressed. This is not like the situation in the United States. There's no suggestion of Im um, improper connection between the Trudeau government and anyone in the Chinese state. But knowing that they were the intended beneficiaries, they should have been extra vigilant to safeguard the elections process. Um, because uh, it's not that Canada can stop this from beginning but it can fortify the country and people in politics can make sure that they want no part of this. That And no one should ever want to come to power in any way owing anything to any foreign entity, especially a hostile one like China. Let me take up some of the points you just raised there. As we were preparing for a conversation, I, I wanted to put to you, notwithstanding the fact that we're still learning more about these circumstances, how would you compare them to the allegations of foreign interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election? Well, in, in, in some ways... Um, Canadians can breathe a sigh of relief that, that um, it's pretty hard to generate a candidate as corrupt and unpatriotic as Donald Trump. Um, and they, they don't come along every day. Um, and so the idea that, that Donald Trump was, I mean, there are a lot of mysteries about the nature of his connection, but he certainly knew uh, in real time that the Russians were helping him. He welcomed it. Um, and um, he, as president, he pardoned many of the people who are involved in the scheme. And the exact dimensions of the scheme, some of that remains uncertain. And his motives, when people argue about was he colluding or not, exactly what it was that led him to the involvement he had, that remains the biggest mystery. But whether it was just ideological admiration, whether it was um, the smell of future business dealings, whether it was some hold that the Russians had, those things we still don't, don't know. Um, this, uh, that was a, that's really a unique situation. What Canada faces is a general problem that um, it's going to share with other democracies. Australia has faced very similar situations where there's a big Chinese diaspora. Um, uh, many of the people in the Chinese diaspora have relatives at home. Uh, they are subject to extraordinary pressure from an aggressive state with, um, with, uh, with global reach and a global agenda. Um, and it's, uh, it's interfering in uh, elections in other in democratic countries we know australia is probably the most extreme case canada looks like the runner-up surely they are active in the united states as well probably in other places um, and we need coordinated responses and we need to protect those people who are in legally in canada of, with chinese passports or have chinese extraction in our canada they need to be protected and to know that they will participate in politics with the same freedom and the same lack of fear that their fellow citizens have, and that no one is going to be able to put some kind of threat against them to force them to betray their values and convictions. In previous conversations, David, you've noted that at least in relative terms, you've gone from a China hawk to something of a, a China pragmatist in light of the growing consensus in favor of a more circumscribed and even adversarial relationship with China. Do stories like this change your view at all, maybe more generally, what do they tell us about the, the future of the West's relationship with China? I 
continue to hope for the best and to continue to believe that um, uh, we want to maintain a, as much of a free trade regime as possible with China. Um, but I, good fences make good neighbors. Um, and uh, the China, um, and as uh, you know, the Chinese state has a pretty limited foreign policy agenda, um, but they are trying to, re, you know, they are trying to oppress Hong Kong. They do want to reincorporate Taiwan. Um, and they do want to use um, people with ties to China outside of China as assets as they pursue their agenda. They also are, um, have a big and have had for a long time a big um, intellectual property theft operation all, all around the world. And that means that um, Canadian campuses, and again, one, one hears stories about Chinese students at Canadian campuses who are under some pretty dark pressures. Um, and in some cases are, are exposed to the threat of violence if they don't cooperate with what the political authorities back home. So I, I think one of the ways I remain, I don't know if I expect the term pragmatist, but one of the reasons we, one of the things we have to do is not be provoked into accelerating the conflict that the Chinese, even when their actions are provocative, seem to be inviting. Uh, but you for sure have to safeguard your elections. And that means Canada needs all kinds of rules and not just against China, but against, against others. I think Canadians have had a hard time. It's not in Canadian political culture to incorporate security concerns into the very center of national consciousness. Um, and this has been a problem for a long time. Um, Canada has the luxury of having been protected first, but through its life, protected by one, first the great superpower of the 19th and early 20th century, and then by the great superpower of the 20th and 21st century, the United States, first Britain, then the United States. And so Canada has often outsourced a lot of its um, security concerns. But to be a sovereign means to take security seriously. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest every saturday morning we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca now back to our program that's a good segue to my next question. I want to shift the conversation to the Trudeau government's reaction to these reports and the, and the broader policy and political implications for Canada. There's been a lot of attention on Prime Minister Trudeau's public dismissal of the recent media reporting. But I'm struck, as you alluded earlier, David, that his government has known at some level about this intelligence since sometime after the 2019 federal election campaign and yet has seemingly done nothing with it. What do you think might be behind that? Well, I have a more personal connection to this. My, my late father-in-law, Peter Worthington, was the one and only Canadian ever prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. And he was prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act by the elder Trudeau back in the 1970s for breaking a story about how the elder Trudeau and his government were disregarding KGB actions inside Canada in the 1970s. Um, and uh, actually, and uh, the RCMP came to search his office. And if you knew my late father-in-law and his office half it's you, you, your heart would have to sink <laughs> he was a pack rat and um the, the, the one of his colleagues made the jokes i don't know if they're going to find anything in peter worthington's office they're more likely to lose a mountie inside that office um but 
the point was that, that the elder Trudeau's action to these very serious allegations back then was cover up and prosecute those who told. And that seems to have been passed on to, to his son. And, um, there may be legitimate secrets here, sources and methods, concerns, and um, th- there may be a reason why the government has done what it did. But it sure looks, until we're told others, it sure looks like their impulse was look the other way, pocket the benefit, uh, and cover up the ugly story. As you no doubt know, as we're speaking today, February 27th, there are growing calls for a public inquiry into these issues, at least in part to sustain public trust and confidence in our electoral system. Do you think that's a good idea? I would want to be guided by security officials on that. And there may be valid reasons. Again, sources, methods. How do you know what you know? Uh, that may be something that it's important not to give away. Um, so I, I don't want to take too firm a position on the right kind of investigation. But there needs to be one. Um, and there needs to be then action. Uh, Canada doesn't have a Foreign Agents Registration Act. Um, you know, what we're going to discover is a lot of what happened here was not illegal. Uh, and the, the Canada lacks legal tools. And that's one of the reasons the government didn't do much was because they didn't have tools to do anything. Now, it's their fault that they didn't forge those tools. They had the time. But the f- tools need to be need to be forged. And there also needs to be developed, I think, um, the right kind of attitude inside the um Chinese community and the Chinese expat, Chinese Canadian community and the Chinese expat community in Canada. But they might need to know that the authorities are their friends. Uh, the authorities are there to protect them. Um, if you know things, if you've been subject to pressure, no one is blaming you for having relatives back in China whom you're concerned about. That is not your fault. That is not a, that doesn't make you in any way a disloyal person. Um, you have to be protected, but you also have to come forward with what you know. Let me ask you more generally, what do you think Canada and other countries ought to be doing to protect themselves from election interference from China, Russia, and, and as you say, David, uh, various other bad actors around the world? Yeah. Well, you, uh, dis- disclosure, the first thing is disclosure. That, that helps enormously. Um, it is, uh, it is harder in, in and this is where the, the Canadian system of, of spending limits and so on has had a, a good impact. The thing, the, the thing I was specifically testifying about when I went to, uh, Parliament was Canada has historically had a cutoff of the number of years where you as a Canadian citizen can be outside Canada and still be allowed to vote. Um, and that there was a, a move, I think it was a court decision to, uh, followed by law to make that indefinite. Well, I, I, I think we've just seen that it is, it would be really dangerous. I mean, a lot of Canadians from Hong Kong, um, and if they return to Hong Kong and live there for years and years and years, um, and to let them vote in Canadian elections, that, that you're inviting your, the Chinese state to put pressure on those people. Um, and many of those people might even welcome being able to say, I can't vote. Canada. I've, I've been out of Canada for three years or five years or whatever the appropriate cutoff is. I can't vote. So stop threatening me and to, to, to vote the way you want me to vote. Um, uh, so that, that uh, cutoffs for how, uh, how long you can be, you can continue to maintain your residency to vote as a citizen outside Canada. Um, disclosure, a financial disclosure. And then um, uh, some of this is going to be informal. Um, some of this is going to be uh, if your intelligence services picks up this kind of pressure on expat students that you go and talk to them and, and just tell them like you ha- will protect you. You don't have to be scared. We've been talking so far about national security and public policy, but I would re- be remiss if I didn't raise the issue of politics, of course. 
how can we talk about these issues and make progress on them in a, such a, a partisan context? I should just say in parentheses, it, you know, it, it seems quite likely that one of the reasons the Trudeau government has been reluctant to disclose some of this, this information because it would create the perception that somehow it was the, a major factor behind their election win in 2019 and, and 2021. I, I don't think anyone's going to say it's a, it was a major factor, but um, the fact that, that there are that um, and the, again, these are battles where the, the defeated MP in, in the most extreme case was of Chinese origin himself. Another MP who was more beholden, allegedly, to the Chinese state was substituted. Um, you know, that has uh, partisan consequences. And if if you are the government and this person takes your whip um, and this person is in your caucus, that's that's something, you, yeah, you, you are, it's reasonable for people to hold you to account for. Um, and the point is not that this contaminates the whole of the government, but it raises questions. Are they doing their first job, which is protecting can- Canadian national security? Yeah, of course you pay a partisan price for that. that, that I mean, uh, look, the ultimate accountability, I mean, we're going to discover that a lot of what happened here was not illegal. The accountability is political. The accountability is at the ballot box. So um, if people lose seats, if if, uh, if if governments lose their office because of this, that's uh, what other recourse is there? No one's going to go to prison, I suspect, over these activities. But we're going to discover that mostly really bad things that happened were not illegal at the time. The flip side is also true, though, that there is a view that the Conservative Party of Canada was penalized in some writings across the country in 2021 because the party's perceived hawkishness towards China. How can a Conservative Party of Canada balance the kind of local political dynamics in certain parts of the country with articulating a policy agenda in a changing kind of geopolitical and technological context. This is part of being in a globalized world. We're going to discover that, um, you know, many people from China have come to Canada and been naturalized and acquired voting rights. And that community has sharply polarized views. I mean, look, China's polarized. You see people in the streets in Hong Kong and other people deployed against them. Um, you see the possibility of, of a serious war across the China, to Taiwan Strait between people who are Chinese on both sides of that. So a lot of those divisions are going to be exported into Canadian politics and they're going to become in the, look, uh, you know, uh, in the same way that for many years divisions in Ireland were crucial to Canadian politics, you know, uh, that, you know, all, 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 orange v. green. Uh, that was, uh, for many years, a crucial issue, certainly in the city of Toronto. Um, and so I think we're going to have those things naturalized. Um, and to the, if people are abiding by the laws of Canada, then um, uh, you're going to discover that some of the most ultra-hawkish people on China are of Chinese extraction, some of the least hawkish. Um, and they're going to have allies across. That's, that's, None of that is to be deplored or regretted. It's um, it's natural. It's it's how th- it's how we're going to make r- arrive at the right kind of decisions. Um, it's what may, what may prevent us from from stupid kind of hawkishness and from from letting our alarm at the behavior of the ruling factions in China turn us into host- into enemies of the Chinese nation. Some of our some of our most important trading partners and so crucial to a stable and peaceful and prosperous world in the, in the coming century. Um, but there have to be rules and they have to be enforced. And uh, people who have relatives inside China who are vulnerable to pr- pressure, they need to be protected. Just a ton of insights, David, on a, obviously an important and, and sensitive topic. You know, your takeaway for me that we ought to see Chinese Canadians not as threats to our democracy, but actually themselves subject to possible threat and intimidation is a worthwhile thing to keep in our back of our minds as we learn more and more 
about these cases of interference in our, our recent elections. I want to thank you for speaking on this topic and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.